0: What it taught me at that young age is it's okay to go outside um, and talk to people and you know show them what you got because if they like it, they will buy it, even from a I was um thirteen or fourteen year old kid at that time. Mm. So sales has always kind of been something i'm I'm not afraid of. That really taught me, and I think being an entrepreneur, you're you're always selling, right? Like even if you're not in the sales role you're selling yourself, you're selling your ideas, you're selling whatever. It's I think it's an essential life skill that my dad taught me, even even if he didn't right, intentionally teach me that. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Fleet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought.
1: Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the profitable property management podcast. Today I'm here with none other than DD Lee Thanks for coming on the show how You're you doing DD
0: Jordan? Great being here.
1: Well, good to be with you. It's been a minute since we've seen each other. It yeah. feels good to be back on the road, back in the saddle here, Didi. For those that don't know, tell us a little bit about the company where you're where you're located from. Give me some basic stats.
0: Sure. I am the broker owner of Skyline Properties Group. We are located just 30 minutes north of Atlanta. Um, we have two offices: one 30 minutes north of Atlanta, one 30 minutes south of Atlanta downtown. Just to cover our – make sure our bases are are covered. Um, What was the other question?
1: Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Head count. Door count.
0: Door count. Um, We manage residential and HOA. Um, Residential, we have roughly 470 units. Mm -hmm. And on the HOA side, we have just a shy of 2,000 units right now, about 23 um, HOA.
1: Which of those divisions did you start first?
0: The residential side.
1: And how long have you been doing HOA?
0: Um, I started the HOA side about 2011, a year after I started the residential side. Um, and I started the HOA side because through my residential management, you know, we had to work with HOA companies quite a bit and just realized there was a big hole in the market for good HOA companies. Um, and I believe that's true, not just in Atlanta market, but In other markets in general As I've been talking to some NARPA members about that Um, So a huge need for like the smaller company To come back with um, better service You know, and there are a lot of smaller communities That do not get the level of service Just because they're small Um, So there is space for um, easy entry, right? For um, property managers that want to try the HOA side Um, So, yeah, in 2011, I started, um, took on my first HOA, and it kind of grew from there. An interesting thing um, about that growth is uh, Georgia is one of those states that, well, forbids um, property managers from advertising, uh, like direct campaign for HOA business. So we can't send out flyers or brochures to a board member. Um, what was the purpose so what
1: was the intended purpose of that legislation
0: they don't want board members to be solicited Bought. all the time so, yeah solicited yes exactly Yes. Yeah. so um most of the growth is from word of mouth and re- uh,
1: referrals interesting mm-hmm. what's total headcount for the organization
0: um total door count no total or, headcount oh, bodies. For, for my staff people yeah about 10 people
1: Got it. And Mm -hmm. is there a hard division between who works on HOA versus single family?
0: There are when it comes to managers, um, but then we do have some crossovers. So on the residential side, including myself, we have five people. um, And one of them is a VA. And then on the HOA side, we have also five people. um, And one of them is also a VA. So- kind of split even evenly
1: so how did we how did we get here if we just rewind the clock here were you one of those little girls that grew up just dreaming of being (laughs) in residential property management how did you wind up I wish
0: I were I would be so much uh, better of a property manager if I were you know (laughs) but no um man where should I start
1: well where are you from originally
0: okay um we're gonna go that far yeah all right let's do it uh originally from China and I moved here when I was 12, um, spoke no English, right? Uh, knew my ABCs and- um, Sounds tough. Yes. And it was a interesting process because we first moved to Murray, Kentucky, which is like a small, small town. Um, my entire elementary school, there were two black kids and then me. There were no international students at all they didn't even know what a, a ESL program English is second language right um, so I got thrown into to the curriculum right away and of course not knowing English I just you know seemed really dumb but I was really good at math like mm-hmm. math was the one class I had A's in and um, the at the end of sixth grade the principal came and talked to my parents and they said if she didn't speak English um, by the time she comes back from summer, we're gonna have to hold her back a year, mm. and in, like in Chinese culture, that is like the big no right? Shameful thing. So um, that summer, I memorized the dictionary <laughs> every single day. I would memorize thirty vocabulary words, and by the end of the summer, I w- I had like I could speak English, and um, the school had no idea <laughs> what happened. Um, so. Fast forward to uh, 1996, Atlanta had the Olympics. So my dad graduated, got his MBA, then we moved to Atlanta. He started his his own business. So he was an entrepreneur, right? He's an entrepreneur. And I kind of grew up in that. um, He raised me to, you know, always look for opportunities
1: what kind of an entrepreneur was he? What was his business?
0: Uh, he's in the equestrian wholesale business. Oh,
1: interesting. Buying and selling horses.
0: Um, equestrian products. Okay. So he's like, uh, at the time when he started his business, there was no Chinese um, manufacturers in that business because, you know, like cowboys,
1: right, they yeah. bought
0: American-made, right, USA-made things. Mm-hmm. So my dad's like, well, there's no Chinese competition. I'm going to come in and bring... Chinese-made products, and so he grew his business from there, and um, his products in every tax shop in the in the country. And um, so, but before he found that business, he tried every other product, like you know, fiber optic Christmas trees and groom, like miracle groom, like uh, spray-on cleaner for your pets. And I would I tested the market for him by selling these all these products door, door, door. to door. Oh, we lived in the apartments. And so oh. I attribute like my sales.
1: <laughs> wow. That's special.
0: <laughs> yes. So fast forward to Atlanta. Um he started his own business and I've been in Atlanta ever since '96. Went to school, went to Georgia Tech for computer science. And um knew I didn't like computer science uh after my first year and then my dad said, You have to finish we're only paying for four years of school. After you finish, you can do whatever you want. So um, then I graduated from tech in four years, of course, and then got my um, first job working for AT and It was there that I met my mentor for real estate. So um, then I invested in two rental properties. My after um, first year of working, you know, responsible thing to do with your salary. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I bought two rental properties, and then it's like, oh, this is great. Like retirement strategy was buy two pro- rental properties a year. In fifteen years, you would have thirty properties. You said right, and then in fifteen years, you sell half of your portfolio. Use the proceeds from that the sale to pay off your the rest of your fifteen
1: free so cash flow. Yeah,
0: then you own the fifteen like free and clear. It's like, man, that's my retirement strategy. I'll retire in fifteen years. And then, um, but buying two properties a year just seemed too slow for me. So I found a couple partners, and we started buying properties quickly. and we had 12 properties within two years. And I managed those properties. I, I, w- I handled the management part. Um, and I did everything wrong. Like at that at that time, um, it was like 2003, 2004, I had no idea that property managers existed. <laughs> So I did all the management myself, um, learned all about evictions. Um, I had tenants like owing me tens of thousands because I had, uh, you know, I bought into their stories, their sob stories. Anyway, I just did everything like you're not supposed to, right? And so, but I learned all my lessons. And um, in 2008, when the market crashed, a lot of my friends and family came to me and said, hey, you know how to re- manage rental properties? Will you manage for me? So um, I I knew at that time that property management was going to become a big bigger need, right? There's like a lot of demand in the in the market. Um, so I went, and got my broker's license, and put it with my uh, my own management firm at that time that I you know that managed my own portfolio, and then the rest is history.
1: So, how were you impacted by 08 and that whole meltdown? Did that impact your?
0: It did. It did. I had to um, d- do some deed and lose and foreclosures because, you know, w- part of the the portfolio was bought with um, variable rate loans. Mm. That country oh, Arms country. Arms um, forgot the company that did it, but but yeah, they they. uh Put me in that program and I trusted the mortgage lender so much because she was the mom of my real estate broker. Mm.
1: And
0: so um, I was like, yeah, sign me up for whatever loan program you got, the best one. She's like, oh, yeah, this one's like so cheap. You'll, you know, you'll enjoy the low rates. It's mm. variable. Oh, brutal. Yeah, so brutal. And um, I learned my hard lesson there is never sign anything without reading it yourself. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, I got burnt on, on that. So it's okay. It's all, it's all like lessons in life. I'm smarter because of it. (laughs) Yeah, no
1: doubt. I've had a lot of painful lessons that have scaled and been worthwhile Uh at a a large enough scale. So all that to say, did you have some identity around wanting to be an entrepreneur when you were younger or was it just kind of a series of steps that took you there?
0: Um, I had no idea what I wanted to be as a kid and I just kind of did as my dad told me. One of the blessings is I didn't think very much for myself, you know. I was just kind of like my dad's like, "Hey, take these um, products and go sell them door to door." Like, okay. So it was lack of fear or lack of um, like self. Uh, what do you call it? Like thinking. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: But it what it taught me at that young age is it's okay to go outside um and talk to people and you know show them what you got because if they like it they will buy it even from a I was um 13 or 14 year old kid at that time. Mm. So um so sales has always kind of been something I'm I'm not afraid of and um you know that really taught me and I think being an entrepreneur you're you're always selling, right? Like even if you're not in the sales role um you're selling yourself you're selling your ideas you're selling whatever it's i think it's an essential life skill that my dad taught me even even if he didn't right intentionally teach me that
1: undoubtedly yeah Business they say revenue solves all problems yeah i definitely relate to that idea that sales is an overarching skill set and it's something that needs to get pushed lower into the organization even for folks in non-sales roles As you think about where you're at now and the business being more stable, there's more scale, what what lights you up right now? What's been getting you excited in the business as of late?
0: So um, we've been experiencing a lot of fast growth, right? And this past year, we've been um, fortunate to develop really strong relationships with some investors that are now aggressively acquiring portfolios. And,
1: institutional, individual, um,
0: not institutional. Uh, foreign investor groups that have just grown bigger and bigger. Um, you know, once they find a property management company that they can trust,
1: they'll lean into the market then,
0: more. Yes, then then they'll um, they'll go out and tell their friends and colleagues, and then the next thing you know, you're getting a lot of investors reaching out to you. Um, so that's how we grew and. The exciting thing about it is the growth, right? I've um, I've designed my processes um, and hired with the intention of growing to 500 doors. I was actually at 300 doors the year prior, and I was like, "Yeah, we, we're good." Like I I know I overhire a little bit, over staff a little bit, um, but my intention is to not have to change anything in my system, in my staffing, until we reach 500 doors. Mm. Um, but didn't realize that 500 hours would come. You know, so really, it was within two months of having to do that. So the exciting thing is that growth. Um, but then that comes with challenge of scaling, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, there are some things we do have to. We did have to change um, to accommodate the growth. And challenge to me is always like an exciting thing. I, I don't do well with boredom. Mm -hmm. you probably don't either Mm -hmm. we have it's a disease i always think it's like a disease um
1: (laughs) it's a gift maybe at at its best it's a it's a gift to explore and try new things it's stimulating if nothing else
0: yes for sure
1: so when you are making some of these changes here, what did hold true about that premise that you can staff up and scale into 470? What aspects of the infrastructure have really been a blessing and gone according to plan? And what, mm-hmm. a- what in aspects of the infrastructure have gotten wobbly?
0: I think um, anything that's like an automation tool, right? Um, it, tools that can, if we just plug information in to the tool, then it just takes it take us to the through the next steps without us having to like shuffle papers or make calls or even have to text each other. It just lets us know, hey, this is the next step, or it just does it for us, mm-hmm. right? Um, I love that, and that those tools have really um, been essential for us to be able to scale without changing much. Um, I can talk about, like, different tools that we use. Sure, right? yeah. I right. mean, Lee Simple, for example. Awesome. we We use Lee, Lee Simple for um, handling new prospects, uh, prospective owners, um, any leads that come in into our through our website goes straight to, to Lee Simple. And then my BDM, um, you know, it'll reach out to my BDM. My BDM will contact the lead and plug in the information to Lee Simple. And then Lee Simple starts sending out these, like, Follow-up emails without the BEM even having to touch anything, um, and it takes us to the through the the sales process uh, very nicely. Um, and then we have uh, you know Process Street to do the operation side of things. Once a once a tenant is um, approved in the process, it kind of takes us through that process automatically. Property mailed for maintenance. I think all of these tools that help us automate the different pieces, mm-hmm. the more we have, um, the less, you know, we have to do as a staff. Mm. So I think that's key to be able to scale without having to change much in staffing.
1: So those tools have scaled well as you've asked. Completely. As you yeah. And yeah, so what's they what do. what about the flip side? What's gotten wobbly?
0: Um it's the transition piece is probably the the hardest part. Just because we're still kind of in the, you know, in the midst of it, um, making sure. Well, I'll tell you the most challenging part of the of getting a, a of adopting a portfolio, where, whether someone's acquiring a portfolio or, like in my case, investor just dumps a portfolio in, uh, into our laps. The challenge of it is to figure out the true state of that portfolio and doing all of the digging and like pulling the paperwork. Cross-checking the leases, right, and the tenants' contact information, making sure the rent roll is correct—all of that is extremely painful. In our case, um, the previous management company of this portfolio, she she stole the security deposits. Oh no! Yeah, brutal. Have not turned uh, turned those in, and we don't know where she is. And she kept all of the August rent like rent. what does so, the
1: recourse look like
0: yeah no i mean she needs to go to jail in my opinion you know <laughs> well, she
1: maybe she does yeah, i'm sure I she clearly does but yeah. in terms of making the the money holder whole.
0: yeah so um security deposits are tenants money right so in this case the um the owners are now responsible for all of that money which is a lot um and it's really unfortunate. And they've hired an attorney to go after this you know, property manager, but wow. can't find her. Can't Can't find her. You can't get the money back. Wow. Um, and then, of course, everything that they did was on paper. There was nothing electronic. They didn't use any software mm-hmm. where we can just click download. So everything, all of the lease agreements, uh, maintenance records, everything is on hard copy, which mm-hmm. is... A, Amazing for today. Um, for people to manage the hundreds of properties without the assistance of a software. But that's what they did. I don't think they were an opera members. (laughs) So honestly, if uh that that was that's the biggest challenge. Like once we get past the transition stage, um, I don't think there will be a whole lot of issues. You know, the the tenants, there is a learning curve. Mm Because we're now coming in and saying, hey, everything's online. You know, they, They're they used to going to a leasing office in their community and dropping off rent or signing paperwork. Um, and we got rid of that le- leasing office. We're able to take everything online. And for the investor, they love it because now we can turn that leasing office into another income-generating property. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a learning curve for the residents, right? And then educating them on like things like, Using mailed and using uh, online, right, rent payment. Most of them love it, and then there are the the older ones that we just need to coach them a little bit. But that's it. Not nothing from like, from an operations perspective. We're we're holding up pretty well.
1: That's great. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, it stabilizes, and then a new goal, and yep. then you accomplish the new goal, and then another goal, and another goal. That's kind of the life of an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. How do you think about? This balance between hitting goals and just being happy, yeah. independent of your worth, has associated with your ability to hit goals. Absolutely. What does that look like to navigate that for you at this point um, in your career? That is
0: a great question, Jordan. Man, because that, that's a question that I always ask myself um, is when is what is enough for me, right? Um, and I always ask that question for like my, my peers and colleagues too, like people I see that are going through burnout. I say why are you killing yourself? Like mm. when is it enough? Mm-hmm. And to me what I have right now is enough. It is. Um if I if everything just like went away, I would still be okay. Um I don't think that I've ever worried about where the money is going to come from.
1: Mm.
0: You know, like I will find a way to money is like you there's opportunities everywhere. We're fortunate to be in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that part, like, I'm never worried about, I think what drives me is, um, at this point is just being able to propel people around me that I care about to the next level. Right. Like it's, it's all about helping someone else at this point.
1: Lifting up the people around you.
0: Mm-hmm. What, what can I, what can I do for someone else? And For me, having a good organization is going to be helpful to my staff. It's going to be helpful to the clients and the customers that we serve. That's really what drives it. It's like, how do we be better? How do I be better for my team? And how does my team be better for my clients and
1: customers? When you talk to other NARPM members or other property managers in general, I think it's really broader than that, I think it's small business owners. Where do you see folks shooting themselves in the foot? There are really painful things. that come in from the outside. You can't see it. Economy changes, COVID. And then there's a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Mm. In the category of the latter, what comes to mind for you of, of largely avoidable problems that some folks still get caught up in?
0: Yes. Um, I think they. a lot of people let their own fear of the unknown, and also what they think might happen, right? But not necessarily the reality, keep them from taking action. Um, so a lot of people say, I'll just, you know, random example is why I can't charge fees mm-hmm. for this. No one's going to want to pay it, but that's because they can't see themselves doing it, but it doesn't mean that people won't do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I think that, I think that's to me, like, that's the first thing that came to my mind is letting their own perception of what won't work, keep them from getting that next big thing.
1: Can you think of any examples of limiting beliefs for yourself that you were able to work through and it caused a real shift?
0: Um, all the time. I mean, you know, it's a constant, like, you know, you you have self-doubt Yeah. And I think self-doubt is always a part of the equation for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you, b- before you implement a new service or you charge a new fee or you take on a new, right, new 100 and, what, 200-door portfolio overnight, you're always like, oh, man, are we are we going to be able to do this? Mm-hmm. And i like, well, you don't know till you try. Mm-hmm. Um so I think, I mean, it happens to me on a constant basis is that the the doubt of saying no one would buy the service, no one would um, pay this fee, and then just getting over that is saying if it fails, what could be the worst thing? We just wasted a bunch of time, that's all, right? And mm-hmm. that's okay because we tried. Like, um, I did try one thing uh, recently last year. I tried the zero um, no no management fee
1: <laughs> concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right.
0: Yeah, I, I did this whole like slide deck presentation for my team. I uh, videotaped you know, all these um, like sales pitches mm-hmm. to our um, to potential clients, and did all of that. And we got and I paid Google AdWords, um, did everything, set up Lead Simple, like the mm-hmm. process for it. And um, we got a lot of leads. I paid a lot of Google Ads money, but none of those leads converted. Mm-hmm. and and I realized that um, when you present two services, like two things you have a client has to compare and they have to do math. Mm-hmm. And that it didn't work because <laughs> they had to do math. And you tell them, hey, there's zero management fee for all the basic stuff, like collection, uh, things that we do on a monthly basis. You don't have to pay a management fee for those. But anytime we have to do anything extra right outside of those, you just pay a fee.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, at the end of the year, you'll you'll end up paying a little bit less on the zero fee structure. But they just, they don't get it. And they always think there are strings attached.
1: It's a, there's a bait and switch somewhere in there.
0: Yes. So, um, I mean, things do fail, if, you know, if you <laughs> try enough. Um, but it's all right. Right, I'm like, that's all good. Team, you know, we'll we'll do something else.
1: That's part of the thrill, yeah. in my experience. Yeah. If it's not if if nothing is risked, and risk is defined by the possibility of failure, then there's nothing gained. It's if, whether whether or not it's rational or not, it's hard for me to get out of bed in the morning without mm-hmm. having some potentiality for failure. If I right. just knew everything was going to go right, it's kind of like
0: boring. Yeah. Totally boring. And I don't think that's fully (laughs) rational, but
1: I know my own wiring, you know, that thrill and that rush of like, hey, you know, I'm going to jump up in the air and do, try and do a triple sow cow and land it, but I may fall (laughs) flat on my face. And when you pull it off, that's where that like, yeah, that fist pump comes from. Yeah.
0: Don't get me wrong though. I I sure love days where I just have like zero challenges Mm. and, you know. But I can't have too many of those days. Oh, no doubt.
1: You're right in the way, right? You're up, you're down, you're high, and then you're low.
0: Yeah. Bryn here from Lead Simple. I love Lead Simple, but that feels like a given. Instead of telling you why I love it, here's Sarah Hatch from Hatch Property Management. We're very happy, and I recommend so many people to Lead Simple because I'm like, oh my gosh, it changed our world. (laughs) It totally changed. Our whole way
1: of uh, managing properties and staying in contact is the best business investment I've ever made.
0: To learn more and connect with one of my
1: teammates, go to leadsimple.com slash podcast today. So part of that cycle is thinking about the consideration potentially getting out of the business. How do you relate to thinking about that long-term Exit. What would it take? What would it look like? What would you do? Yeah. What's the, the mental calculus that you do as you consider mm-hmm. that? And invariably, you're yeah. approached with those conversations, sure. as pretty much everybody is these days.
0: Absolutely. Um, I when I started the business, I didn't start it to sell. One day, I didn't know what I was going to do. Like, I didn't have an exit strategy, right? But over the years, talked to much smarter people than me, like um, CPAs and. Um, financial advisors and they always say and of course you read books business books that always say hey even if you don't have a, a uh the intention of selling your business build it to s- as you would sell it mm-hmm. um and it, it made a lot of sense to me so five years ago i started uh doing things to have a business that is sellable doesn't mean i want to you know that i wanted to sell or ready to sell but it would be ready to sell if I. If I wanted to, so some things like um, start starting to hire people to replace the the tasks, the work functions that I was doing myself, mm-hmm. to just remove myself from the day to day operations, um, making sure my accounting, like for my company, was you know in line, getting monthly P&Ls done, um, and uh, and you know just setting it up so that if someone were to purchase my company one day. I want to hand it to them like, hey you go, it's it's already with like, a bow on it. With a bow on it. You don't even need me in the middle. Um so I started doing that five years ago and I'm pretty close to being able to do that.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. So when you think about the mental calculus to justify if to pull the trigger, mm-hmm. what are the considerations that go through your mind. I mean, for for me, I think partly about what what else would I do. You
0: mm-hmm. know. Absolutely. In that's, that regard,
1: how do you how do that's, you weigh those?
0: Yes. Um, I think can't remember how long it was. Maybe three or four years ago. Um, I was approached by a company to purchase my company, which happens, you know, happens a lot in this industry. And I went to a great friend who is a business broker. I said, "Hey, you know, what do you think about me selling?" They're kind of offering me a pretty sweet deal. And he said, "Well." Didi, you're still young. Like, what are you gonna do when you sell your business? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, so he said, like, you know, if you enjoy doing, you know, being in this business and it's growing, keep at it. Keep keep at it. You'll you'll know when the time is right to sell, um, or have something else lined up, right? Because for someone like you, like you, you need to stay busy. Mm-hmm. So it took his advice. And, um, so yes, what you said is absolutely true. It, before I sell, I want to make sure that there is um, something else that I'm working on, which I am working on several different ventures, mm. um, very exciting ones and um, and you know, and the other thing is, um, you think about the staff, right? Mm-hmm. what's gonna happen. Um, you want to make sure that. The business, the company that um, is going to acquire you has similar cultures and they appreciate the work that you've, you Mm. know, this company that you've built.
1: Mm. That's an interesting Um, one. Many acquirers are transparent Mm -hmm. about the fact that that's not how this works Mm -hmm. and that's really a non-factor and that likely everybody – will be gone. And it's not meant to be aggressive or adversarial. That's just kind of how they operate. It's the policy. They're buying the doors. Mm -hmm. It's about the platform, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. What do you see in those conversations? I mean, do you find that um, most of those conversations kind of come with that implicit undertone? Or do you find that some of the potential acquirers, even if you choose not to do it, it would be under the terms and auspices that the staff would be kept around?
0: That's, you know, it's a direct question I would always ask is, hey, what's your what's your strategy for this company? Like, you know, is their uh, business already located geographically in Atlanta and they already have, like, you know, a whole system set up? Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then I know that some of my staff will have to go,
1: right? They're just going to absorb the doors.
0: Yes. I mean, they may retain some just to handle the portfolio, but... A lot of the positions would be gone, especially if they have that, the headquarter, right, piece to take care of everything else. Um, but then there are some companies who are, if they're looking to grow into my geographical region, they have nothing there and they need the local staff to kind of run things, then that's a different story. So even if they do say, um, hey, we're going to retain everyone, you kind of have to look at their current company structure and see where how they're operated and their, you know, locations. Then you kind of, you'll, you'll, you know, as a business person, you're going to know, Hey, they probably don't, they won't need everybody on my staff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can look at other analogs of transactions I, that have already been made. That's go. There are so many other people in this business that have been down that path and a bunch of others. You mentioned mm-hmm. mentorship earlier mm-hmm. who have been some mentors for you in the business.
0: Um, it's, that's easy. Robert Locke, um, who is like, we call him one of the founding fathers of the Atlanta Charpam, uh, NARPAM chapter. Um, he's been around for a long time. And I took his property manager series, uh, like one of the basic series um, in 2010. And he, at the end of the class, he's like, if you're wanting to stay in this business, you're not a NARPA member, then you you will not. Make it, <laughs> you know. He basically said it like that, and so I joined Narpo immediately after that class. And um, he's just—he's still like, you know, big uh, part of the chapter and um, big supporter of NARPOm. And he's taught like all of the basic foundations of property management to me. So my lease agreements, my management agreements, all started with Robert Locke's um, stuff. And then, of course, I, you know, over time. I grew from there, but then there's so many, so many educators um, that I've learned from and look up to: Michael McCurry, Mike Nelson, um, you know, Eric Weatherington. Like, I just really enjoyed all of their classes as I was getting into this business.
1: And you've obviously leaned into Narpm. You're an oh, office absolutely. holder now. Yes. What do you get out of that for somebody on the outside? In uh, we're at convention, and mm-hmm. so it's very clear to a lot of folks here yes. what the upside is, what the benefit is. Yeah, But you know just as well as I do, there are sure a lot of folks out there that are not NARPA members, yeah. and something about the nature of the offer hasn't been sufficiently compelling mm-hmm. to get them off the couch. How would you mm-hmm. articulate the value of not only why somebody should join, but even being involved from, Mm -hmm. from a distance. Some folks are like, well, what am I getting out of that? I'm volunteering my time for this organization. I'm already busy. If I'm not working, Mm -hmm. I want to be with my, my kids. Yeah. What's the, what's the pitch or the argument in favor of that level of commitment and involvement?
0: So when, when you get involved, you get to spend some really dedicated time with, uh, passionate people. Right. And, um, when you spend that m- amount of time together, you're going to talk about, f- you know, business in detail. So there's benefit to coming to conventions like this. Um, the workshops are great. The general sessions offer some information. But to me, they're like on a broad level, right? They, they're, they you know, they may uh, spark a thought or an idea. Um, but that's as far as it goes for me. If I go to like the workshops or the general sessions. But when when you and I are sitting like um, at a table planning a, a meeting or, you know, strategic planning or just hanging out at a social event with with your local NARPUM chapter, you're going to talk about, hey, you know, I've got this um, issue, uh, you know, stuck in this process mm-hmm. and I don't know how to do it better. Like, well, how are you doing it today? That's when you really have time to delve into the details of the business and um help each other out and give each other ideas or you know well so many times like I'll um be working on a committee or at a board meeting and somebody will will pipe up and say hey guys I found this great vendor and this is what I'm doing with it what are your thoughts like you know this is this is why I love them um, this is why I'm thinking about implementing that system or whatever program and everybody will start chiming in asking questions so it's kind of like you have your own uh personal group of brain trust but you can't get there until you trust Mm and uh like those people Mm -hmm. and you have dedicated time with them right Mm -hmm. so to me that's kind of um the benefit of being involved is now i have like this like um group of people that I can call my brothers and sisters in Mm NARPM, my family, right? Mm -hmm. And we share information with each other and we help each other. And there's like zero judgment on how everyone's doing things. It's just, hey, we share failures and we share successes. And it's just great, but you can't, you don't get that by just coming to a convention and not get involved, right? And not, not, you have to like see these people repeatedly to develop Mm -hmm. that relationship and trust. Mm um so that's that's the benefit of it
1: yeah there's a lot of joy in those oh my gosh, relationships so good, so good. it's a big part of them
0: i mean you and i like we've seen each other we'll see each other we run into each other at conferences and conventions but we haven't really got a chance to sit down and get to know each other but we did at the speakeasy mm-hmm. dinner I was like, yeah. hey jordan is a really cool guy you know i mean you i know you're a cool guy from hearsay <laughs> Good to know. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Um, and then I got to know you. It's like, yeah, it's I enjoy conversations with you. And um, then you know, friendship forms. And then next thing you know, you're talking business, where you're sharing, you know, business ideas.
1: Now that's an interesting so, segue. What does it mean to you to see vendors here and showing up? There's obviously vendors. There's all different flavors. Mm-hmm, there are huge global mm-hmm. vendors to which property management is a is a fleet is a tick on a dog's back mm-hmm. right it's just sure. a very small industry yes. and they may or may not show up there are vendors that are run by former property managers mm-hmm. that couldn't be more embedded and then there are folks that are somewhere in between that are dedicated to this vertical the in- vendor involvement in these things how does that influence or color how you think about those vendors and what they're offering
0: it's huge um uh, you know, I love, I appreciate vendors so much, like people that put in their time. Um, it's just like what I said earlier about being involved, right? It's like you can, it's very easy to tell who's not in it um, for the relationships. They're just in it for a dollar, right, or an account um, because they don't, there's a lack of care. They sit behind uh, a booth, and they're on their laptops and they'll hoping look up. No, hoping nobody
1: comes and talks to yes, them. Yes. <laughs>
0: and I've actually ran into vendors like that. And and they'll look up every once in a while, like, oh, hey. Okay, bye. Yeah. Or they don't even look up and you standing in front of them, like, oh, hi. And um, those vendors, I don't I don't even care what they have to sell. You know, I, I'll look for someone else who's more passionate. Mm. Because one, it shows that they' If they are truly passionate about what they have to offer, they're going to be like, "Hey, let me tell, let me talk to you. Mm-hmm. Let's let's sit down, grab a coffee, or mm-hmm. grab you know lunch. Let me talk to you about my service because I think it will really help you." Um, people like that who are passionate about their own services and mm-hmm. product, it's like, okay, if they believe in it that much, le- I will, I will sit down, and give them my time, mm-hmm. and listen to what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Because people who truly believe in their product are passion- passionate. You can feel it, right? Amen. And, yes. And then um, and I know for our local Atlanta chapter, if a vendor takes the time to show up to our luncheons, to show up to our social events, we're going to do everything we can to direct our business to them. They don't have to be the cheapest in the industry. They might. They don't even have to be the best. But just knowing that vendor is going to show up And I have that relationship with them. And if, you know, no one's perfect. I never expect a vendor to deliver perfect service every single time. But I know that if uh, something happens, a mistake happens, I know I can find that vendor, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe the owner himself or herself shows up at our meetings every single time. And I know I can say, hey, this is what happened. What can we do to fix it? And that's it. That's it. Um, that to me is so, so valuable. And I would rather give my business to that vendor than another vendor that's just like, you know, they don't really care. Out. Yeah, they pay their dues and they don't show up. And they they wonder what value they get, like NARPUM gives them, mm-hmm. but you got to show
1: up. <laughs> yeah, You know, I don't think this is irrational. I don't think this is warm fuzzies, kumbaya. I actually think what you're articulating is a really... Practical material consideration on a couple of different levels. Number one is context. People that show up have a depth of context that allows them to provide a better product, Mm -hmm. period. The closer that you are to customer pain Mm
0: -hmm. and the more you
1: care about solving it, the better your stuff is going to be, whatever stripe or variety it yeah. is. And I think the other piece is what you mentioned, the accountability piece. Mm-hmm. One thing that's so great about these conventions is that it's really hard to screw somebody over. <laughs> you can do it once <laughs> maybe one and a half times. Yes. You ain't doing that two years in a row, you yeah, know? You if mass. you misbehave, you're out of here. Yeah. So there's this self-policing aspect yes. of it. And the people that keep showing up, like there's a reason that they keep showing up yeah. and something's clearly working.
0: Yes. I agree. I mean, the companies that show up year after year say, okay, enough people believe in you and use your services for you to, you know, keep coming back. And so that, that, that speaks for itself as well.
1: What does your NARPM chapter look like? What's the size?
0: The Atlanta chapter, um, is, has been the large chapter of the year for a few years in a row. Um, and we are, I believe, the largest chapter right now. We have about three hundred and eight or nine members. Wow. Um, so yes, I, I we are the largest chapter, and the makeup of the chapter, um, it's we have a pr- pretty strong like leadership. You know, we have about fifteen people or or more that participate on the board. Um. So people get involved. Yeah.
1: Well, let me ask you a somewhat loaded question okay. if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about Narpam oh man what would it be
0: Okay, we're done. <laughs>
1: <That's good>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. I'm putting you on the spot, but I mean, you're you're in it, and if this organization isn't yes. here to serve the members and to take and acknowledge member voices, what's mm. it here for? And of course, it is, and that's part of part of why you joined to make yes. a difference. What comes to mind for you?
0: Well, you, I think you just said it is um, you know an organization that values members' voices, and this is my first year being involved on the national side. I've always stayed within my local chapter. Cause there's plenty to do. Right. Um, and I got involved with national and I, I got to see behind the scenes for the first time, like how national, um, leadership works. And I think there is a misconception there. Right. It's like national leaders care so much about its members, like everything they do, everything they talk about, everything they spend time on is how do we make things better for our members? But the members don't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, Every single meeting, like new things come out of that meeting and it gets implemented like resources and tools. Um, and the, you know, leadership thinks about how to spend money to help chapters and help people succeed. But people don't necessarily know that. So I think if I could wave a magic wand, it would be to, for everyone to immediately get the, the knowledge in their head of everything that NARPUM has to offer them. NARPM has so much. Like it, it blew my mind when I first learned about it, and it was just this year that I learned about. It. And I've been involved in NARPM for so long.
1: That's incredible
0: on a local level. But then I started getting involved nationally. In I'm like, oh my gosh, you mean we have all of these tools and resources that members and chapters can use to become better property managers, successful chapters? Um, people just need more of that knowledge. Mm. Well that's it. Yeah.
1: That's a good answer. More awareness. More awareness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely believe in the mission of what NARPM is doing. Yes. And I, I you know, the community, the communal aspect of it, the joy, isn't it just so obvious to most folks God, that it's so good. content's good, speakers mm-hmm. are great, mm-hmm. not wouldn't want to take anything from that. But the reality is People would come if there were no speakers <laughs> no. yeah yeah it was if it was the same format of just networking and having conversations, people would still show up, and that Dude. says a lot about what people are getting out of it yes
0: i, I spoke to somebody today. say, "Hey, how are you liking the conference she said i'm I've been high like you know on people energy and just seeing all of my old friends since I've gotten here it's like I, I said same, I have not slept well." <laughs> This whole conference, not because the bed's not comfortable, or whatever. Sure. It's just every night I go to bed so excited, like you feel so high. It's so that like so, so much energy, yeah. And then I'm excited about the next day, right? You know, the parties that was coming up <laughs>
1: <laughs> that we're about to go to <laughs> that
0: we're about to go to in a few hours. <laughs> but it's like, oh man, that party's coming up! I'm so excited, and so I can't go to sleep. Yeah. So really, I'm like I'm running on no sleep right now. But that's okay. That's it comes with the the conference. Right? Yeah, I, it don't does. If, I don't know if you experience the it's, same thing.
1: it's turned into an absolute marathon I don't know yeah. how long you've been going to conventions for I think yeah. I'm probably on my sixth or seventh mm-hmm. it really has kind of mushroomed from a much smaller production to now I mean <laughs> I think Bryn, my head of marketing has, has set up like no less than nine events that we have just around it I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not putting on the conference but nine events just around the main thing yeah so it's That's uh, crazy yeah it's, it's turned-
0: a lot it is a production no doubt for vendors like yourself to you know to do all that and we, gosh I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart for everything that you guys do because you guys I always I, I tell people I'm like NARPUM was not always like this yeah it was in the most recent what four five years mm-hmm. when vendors like you guys came into our space it's like let's just let me let let us show you how to have fun let's kick it up <laughs> kick it up a couple of yeah. matches yeah And then all of a sudden, Narvin's like, "Man, I want to go. I want to be there. I want to show up." Because it was not always like this. It was always very business, very like you know, strict. uh, Not strict, but just it was a conference. Yeah. Now it's like, gosh, it's so exciting to be here.
1: Yeah. Well, what a gift! I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be doing it and experiencing it with you. Yes. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited to see where your career is headed and where it takes you. And uh, until next time, be well.
0: Thank you, Jordan.